It was a day like any other, when out of the clear sky, a handsome young veteran named Josh Hilberling plunged to his death from the 25th story of his high-end, high-rise Oklahoma condo building. Watching from above, from behind the shattered window glass, as Josh's body smashed into the roof of a parking structure 17 stories below, was Josh's seven-month pregnant wife, Amber. That moment, that instant, not only snuffed out a young man's life, but also led to years of what became life-or-death accusations and mystery. Was Josh's fall an accident, or did his beloved wife push him to his death, and if she did, did she do it on purpose? Well, what police determined happened and what Amber claimed happened in that condo were two different tales. It became a case of he said, she said, except the he said part was coming from a man in a grave. I always say your story goes a whole lot better when you're the only one around to tell it. But even with Josh dead, the story Amber told wasn't enough for police to buy that she was innocent. And she didn't only claim she was innocent, she claimed she was the real victim. If you watch my show, you've probably heard me say the most important person in an individual's life is their same-sex parent. And in the moment Josh plummeted to his death, his unborn child, who would be named Levi, lost that person. In that moment, Levi was sentenced to a life without a father. He'd never get to toss a football with his dad or go on a father-son fishing trip. He'd never even meet or know his father. He was robbed of that relationship, and tragically, what no one knew back then, as the police zeroed in on Amber as a suspect, is that blaming her for Josh's death might ultimately cause Levi to spend his entire childhood without his mother or his father. Amber was only 19 years old when Josh died. She was beautiful with a big white smile, shiny brown hair, and perfect skin. The type of girl that was clearly a cheerleader, popular and well-liked. She had been a beautiful bride wearing a tiara and a princess dress. On the outside, her life with Josh looked like a fairy tale, and Amber did not look like a killer. But can looks be deceiving? Police said Amber certainly played the part. In the moments and hours after Josh's death, she was the picture of a grieving wife. After Josh fell, Amber rushed to the elevator and immediately ran to her husband's body, rolled him over, cradled his head in her hands, pleading for someone to get help. By the time paramedics arrived, Amber was hysterical and repeatedly begged them to, quote, fix him. A neighbor also reported he heard Amber screaming, no, 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 in the milliseconds before he heard the crashing sound of shattering glass. Now, even though the couple had just celebrated their one-year wedding anniversary and had a baby on the way, police quickly theorized that the honeymoon was over, that this was no happy couple. And from the very first time Amber set foot in the station, they began to suspect that she had shoved Josh out the window intentionally. Because they were a young and beautiful, picture-perfect couple, the story rapidly went from a local news story to one that grabbed national headlines. Everyone loves a beautiful killer wife, and that's what police were telling the media they had. News stations showed a beautiful photo of the couple, looking like it was torn from a bridal magazine. 
but along with it were the headlines, allegations of physical and drug abuse, misery and murder. I just saw someone jump out of their window. The glass broke and he fell down. That fatal fall from a Tulsa high-rise apartment. Police arrested and booked the 19-year-old on a first-degree murder complaint. A witness says Josh came out facing forward. The state says that would mean he was pushed from behind and proves Hilberlein's intent. She said she was only trying to get him off her when she pushed him. And as soon as he fell through the window, she ran to it. She says she went downstairs to where he was and rolled him onto his back and kissed him and was crying and hysterical. The media ran with the killer wife story, and so did police and prosecutors who set out to prove it. But when it comes right down to it, there were only two people who really knew what happened inside that room, high in the sky that day. Years after Josh's fall, questions remain about what really happened and why. What led up to him going out that window? And what possible motive could be involved if in fact he was pushed? Josh's family, the police, and the courts stand by the police's theory. An angry, hateful wife shoved her husband to his untimely death. But Amber claimed she was living a secret life of hell with Josh and that she was the real victim in all of this. Her family insists that is true. To this day, they claim Amber was a battered wife. And because of her unborn child, she was finally strong enough and brave enough to defend herself against her abusive husband. She wasn't just standing up for herself. She now had another life to protect, that of her child and her maternal instincts, they say, took over. In this episode, we'll look at the story from Amber's point of view. You'll have a chance to make up your own mind. You're listening to episode two, of a beautiful victim or killer wife. Mystery and murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. When investigators initially arrived on the scene, they treated Amber Hilberling as a witness to her husband's tragic death, not as a suspect. Amber was so distraught that an officer gave her a ride to the Tulsa Police Department and put her in a room an interrogation room, with someone he thought might comfort her, her grandmother. He hoped the older woman could help calm Amber down. As Amber cried to her grandmother, she had no idea that everything she was saying would eventually be, she claimed, twisted and used against her. God, why did I do this? I stole his whole life away from him. Oh my God, who could do that? Push my husband and make him fall out the window. 
for the rest of my life, everyone's going to think I'm a murderer. I killed him. Hearing Amber say those words sounded to police a whole lot like a confession. They were the first thing investigators used to start building a case proving Amber's guilt. But were the statements Amber made in that room proof of her guilt? I mean, come on, anyone who pushed their husband out a window to their death, even if it was an accident, would naturally feel guilty, right? I mean, from a psychological standpoint, if you are present, and certainly if you are involved in an accident, isn't the first thing that people say, I blame myself? Oh my gosh, what have I done? How could I have let this happen? People default to self-recrimination. Is it that abnormal that she blamed herself, claiming, I killed him? She did kill him. She never denied that. She was an agent of change. She was an agent of action in the chain of events that resulted in him being on top of that parking garage. She never denied that. A person who has nothing to hide hides nothing, and Amber admitted right then that she had pushed her young husband, and that as a result of that push, that he did impact the living room window, that it did break, and that he did fall out that window. But was this an intentional act? Was this even a reckless act? If someone is going to take someone's life, is pushing them out a window behind drawn shades what comes to mind as a method of ending someone's life? Is this an efficient way to murder someone? We've all been in high-rise buildings. We've all leaned up against windows. We've all tapped windows. We've all seen chairs bump into windows. We all have the sense that those windows are pretty much unbreakable. We certainly don't walk around our high-rise residences, offices, doctor's offices, dentist offices, attorney's offices, thinking, if I bump into that window, I'm going out. That's just not our mindset psychologically. But police weren't just listening to what Amber said in that interrogation room. They were also listening to her grandmother's responses. And her grandmother gave Amber what police interpreted as a serious warning. Josh is dead. I killed him. Who could do that? <laughs> Push my husband and make him fall out the window. Amber, quit saying you're pushing him out the window. When they come in, say, I don't want to say nothing to my attorney kids. Okay? Don't break, don't, and don't slip any other way. Don't break, don't slip. Now, any of you who has ever watched even one episode of Law & Order knows that this is actually sound advice. You just don't speak to police without an attorney present. We all know the Miranda rights, or at least this part of them. You have the right to remain silent. And everything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. I spoke about this in episode one. Amber's grandmother saying the words, don't say anything, don't slip, don't break, may have been just a loving grandma trying to help her granddaughter, but hearing it, what it could have been interpreted as was she was warning her granddaughter to shut up, get her story straight, and don't slip up. 
work this out in your head before you speak. Think first, talk later. Now, as I said, the argument can be made. If you have nothing to hide, why do you need to censor your words? Why do you need to think about what you say before you say it if you have nothing to hide? That's what the police would say. But that's pretty naive because someone listening may have an agenda, and their agenda may be, I need to solve this case. I need to close this case. I need to find someone to hold accountable for this. And if you say something that is ambiguous, something that is unclear, something that is open to interpretation, and it is filtered by someone who is looking for a person to pin it on, a person to hold accountable, they could clear that ambiguity up to your detriment. Maybe Grandma was saying, you're really beating yourself up right now. You need to get a grip on yourself before you start talking about what has happened here. And I'm not saying that the police or the detectives are evil here. They have a job. Remember, detectives and law enforcement officers make it their life's mission to solve crimes, to bring justice to victims. And because of that conversation, they believe Josh was a victim. And once they made up their mind, they never wavered. Now, if that convinces you, like it did the police, that Amber was guilty, I'm asking you to step back from those preconceived notions and really listen to what Amber and her family claims really happened with an open mind. Now, that's easier said than done. Why? Well, let me talk about the psychology behind that. We tend to believe ourselves, right? If you think the next step you take in the dark is going to be off of a steep ledge or a cliff, you would fight viciously to keep from taking that step. Why? Because we tend to believe ourselves. We don't think that we will lie to ourselves. If we say something to ourselves, if we speak to ourselves, we tend to believe that we're going to tell ourselves the truth. That's why if you have a negative internal dialogue and say that you're second class, you tend to live like a second class person and generate second class results. That's why if you tell yourself you're being victimized by somebody, you tend to feel like a victim. We believe what we tell ourselves. And if you are telling yourself that this person, in this case, Amber Hilberling, is guilty, you're going to believe yourself and that's going to cause you to seek out information that validates, confirms, and fortifies your belief. You're not going to look for evidence that proves you wrong because you want to be right. You believe yourself. It's called confirmation bias, and we'll talk about that a bit more later on. But just be aware, when I ask you to step back from that, you have to make a conscious decision to say, okay, I may not know everything about this. There could be some things that would change my mind if I keep an open mind. And here's what I'm talking about. Amber insisted, and her family still insists to this day, that to truly understand why and how this tragedy happened, you have to go all the way back and look at what had been building up to a boiling point since the very beginning of Amber and Josh's relationship. While listening to this tragic tale and all that led up to the instant that Josh fell to his untimely death, I'm asking you to listen with a mindset of what you would do if you had to decide this 19-year-old's fate. If you were sitting on a jury, if you had to decide 
what the consequence should be for somebody that admits being involved, but you had to decide their motive, their intent, why they did what they did when they did it. Do you think it doesn't matter or do you think it does? Is there a difference between someone that swerves their car up on a sidewalk and runs over your foot, clearly on purpose, versus someone that backs out of the driveway and accidentally runs over your foot and had no idea it was there? Is there a qualitative difference between those two things? Both of them ran over your foot. Is there a difference between the two acts? And that's what Amber Hilberling is asking to be considered here. Now, I'm sure some of you may already have zeroed out in your mind as to what happened inside that apartment. You may think nothing else is going to change your mind. And that's what I call confirmation bias. And as I said, that's the tendency for people to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms pre-existing beliefs. And those beliefs get fixed. Here's what you don't know about confirmation bias because it's not as obvious. Further research has shown that even when individuals are presented with direct evidence that refutes the fixed belief they have, this only strengthens the original opinion and does not change their mind even just a little. Now think about what I just said. You think A and someone brings you credible evidence of B. And all it does is cause you to believe A even more. You think, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be that way. Well, actually, we are all that way. Why? Because we want to be right. And so when somebody brings us evidence to the contrary, we kind of hunker down. We kind of grab our beliefs even harder and say, no, wait a minute, I'm going to dig in here. You're not going to root me out of my position. I'm committed to it. I'm going to stay with it. I believe myself. And so you hunker down and hold on to that even harder. And you may think you're immune to that, but I promise you that's human nature. That is confirmation bias. So when I ask you to go into this with an open mind as you listen to Amber's side of the story, you're going to have to make a conscious decision to say, okay, I'm going to give myself permission. I'm going to kick that door open. I say that because Amber painted a very different picture of Josh and their relationship. Now, of course, Josh is not here to tell his side of the story, and we would never wish to speak ill of someone who died in such awful circumstances. But this is what Amber claimed was going on behind closed doors and led up to Josh's tragic death. She told a story of a husband she was afraid of, a husband with a huge temper, a husband who would fly into rage at the drop of a hat, a husband who sold and was addicted to drugs, a husband who was six foot four and 220 pounds, a foreboding physical presence. A husband who would go partying to bars and strip clubs with his friends and leave the pregnant woman home alone. Now, was this true or was Amber dirtying her husband's name to justify the fact that he had lost his life? Amber claimed that while in the beginning her arguments with Josh were just yelling, She alleges that soon they became physical. She accused Josh of hitting and pushing her and even trying to pop her breast implant. Once she became pregnant, Amber claims she knew she had to not just protect herself, but she now had to protect an unborn child that could not self-protect. 
an unborn child who didn't get a vote, an unborn child who could not stand up for themselves. And those motherly instincts came through very strong. Amber said Josh had been kicked out of the military for using drugs. She said on the day Josh died, he had broken a window in a fit of rage after he chose selling pills over attending Amber's father's wedding. She says the fight escalated and she pushed Josh in self-defense. Amber claims the fall was an accident. She never intended for her husband, a man she described later as both a good man and charming as well as irritating and annoying, to die. She says she was only protecting herself and her child. She had no idea he was going to fall out of that window. She said it never occurred to her that she could even do that if she wanted to. As I said, we don't think about high-rise windows as being breakable. But then again, he had broken a window within the last 24 hours. But police believe the evidence told a very different story, and they charged Amber. They hung their hat on that interrogation tape. And when I say interrogation tape, she was not being interrogated. You have to remember that. She was put into a room that the detective said was just a quiet place. It was handy. It just so happened to be an interrogation room. She was not being interrogated, and when she was seated, they said she was not seated as a suspect. She was just seated as a witness, and they were putting her somewhere comfortable. Somewhere comfortable with a camera and a microphone. If that hadn't happened, if she had not been seated in a room that was wired with cameras and a microphone, would Amber's story have a different ending? Had they not overheard her emotional self-recriminations, her emotional unloading onto her grandmother, would this story have a different ending? If Amber's grandmother, Gloria, arrived at the condo first, would Amber have been brought to the police station in hysterics? Would she have been brought to the police station at all? Or would they have sent someone there to take her statement? Maybe if the first time she spoke to police, Amber was in a calmer state of mind, instead of fresh off the immediate shock of seeing her husband fall out of the 25th floor window and drop 17 floors at a speed of 75 miles an hour, and hit the concrete roof of an eight-floor parking garage, would she have maybe not been in immediate shock? And would things have been different? Maybe she would have shown up with a physician, an attorney, a therapist, her parents, a support system. Would that have led her down a completely different road than where she ended up? Now, after Amber claimed to her grandmother in a clearly hysterical, emotional utterance that she killed Josh, witnesses began to come forward. Amber and Josh's next-door neighbor, Nathan McGowan, said on the day Josh died, he heard a loud argument happening between the couple. He claimed he also heard a woman screaming, no, no, no. Then someone rushing across the room, followed by a crash, something that sounded like a broken coffee table. Then he said it got eerily quiet before he heard the woman screaming again, Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. 
Now, police took Nathan's statement as proof that Amber wanted to push her husband out that window in a fit of rage. And she took a running start. They said those were the footsteps that Mr. McGowan heard. It was her taking a running start and surprising him from behind. Thus, the footstomps followed by the breaking of glass. They say it makes perfect sense. She runs up behind him, pushes him from behind, He hits the window face first, which explains the fact that he falls out face forward. But can this be looked at another way? Amber would give her version of what took place. I mean, it started as a yelling match from, you know, a distance, maybe five, six feet or so. He had reached out to grab me, and it shaked me almost. Mm -hmm. He had his arms around my shoulders. And I pushed him off of me, and he had lost his balance, fell backwards into the picture window that ended up giving way, and he fell through to his death. People assume that you're standing right next to this huge window having a physical altercation, and they misinterpret the scene. Like I said, that assumption that we're right next to a visible window is that's not reality. I mean, the blinds were closed. We were maybe two, three feet away and having this pushing match, this shoving match, and he had lost his balance and and tripped backwards. And I reached out, and the next thing I know, I'm standing a couple of feet away from a broken window. We were far enough away from the window where I actually had to take a couple of quick steps to the window and I grabbed the edge and looked over in time to see him actually hit the concrete. If Amber's version is correct, can Nathan McGowan's statement also fit that version of the facts? Could the quick footsteps before the crash of glass described later as a running start to shove him actually be the sound of Josh's feet losing his balance while stumbling towards the window. And remember that the neighbor said after the crash of glass, it got eerily quiet for a time, and then he heard a woman screaming, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Does this not completely match Amber's account of events? He lost his balance, stumbles towards the pulled blinds, and then out the picture window. She was in complete shock for a moment, leaving the room eerily quiet, and then took two steps to the broken glass, screaming at what had just occurred. Doesn't Amber's version match up equally as well, if not better, than some version of an enraged woman wanting to kill her husband? And while we're on this subject, let's address the size difference between the two. A five foot five, seven month pregnant woman up against and trying to move a six foot four military trained football stud across the room and out a window. Now I'm about the size of Josh, and if someone Amber size and in a pregnant state was going to try to move me out that window, I've got to tell you that's gonna be an all day job. Detective Jeff Felton agreed. He said that if Josh did not want to go out that window, there is no way Amber would have gotten him through it. However, there is the opinion that if you catch someone off guard, if you surprise someone and push a big body and they start to stumble, that big body can actually work against you. It's just simple math. You've got a big mass stumbling 
you're tall, you're gangly, you're heavy, it can take a while to regain your footing and your balance. But couldn't you just as easily say that Amber, in protecting her unborn child, pushed Josh off of her? And in an unexpected freak occurrence, that big body did work against him, tripping toward the window. Isn't that possible too? Now let's address the broken glass. To put it plainly, the glass in the window may have been up to current city code, but it did not belong in a high-rise. In fact, calling it a picture window is fitting because the glass was picture frame thin. A window analyst proved that the apartment complex used non-safety glass, and the windows were generally not up to standard. When Josh fell through the window, Amber said it was like the glass was not even there, and it sounded like nothing more than a small glass bowl breaking. A prominent window and glass expert would later say the glass in that tower was totally unsafe and should have been replaced years ago, adding he would never use that type of glass on any of his projects because of its risk. Did Amber know the glass in the window behind the blinds was so dangerously thin, and did she use that knowledge in a wild rage to try and kill Josh? Well, the people charging her certainly thought so. Amber and Josh as I mentioned earlier, previously had an argument in the bedroom where the glass windows inside lead out to an open balcony. During this disagreement, someone threw a laundry basket and broke the glass separating the bedroom from the terrace. The authorities believed Amber may have used this knowledge of the easily breakable glass in her plan to get rid of her husband, or at the very least believed Amber should have calculated the imminent danger so close to Josh when pushing him. Amber's response would be, how does someone think of that when your first instinct is protect yourself and your unborn son? Photos of marks on Amber's shoulders and lower neck area would be taken to help prove her side of the story. Amber claimed Josh was facing her, reaching out to grab her and shake her, and she pushed him off, leading him to tripping backwards and stumbling through the window. But the Tulsa police don't buy Amber's story. Detectives had two eyewitnesses, both of whom described Josh as falling out of that window face first. The detective said this proved Amber surprised him from behind while he was, quote, messing, close quotes, with the television. A television located a few feet from the glass. Still, that's hard to imagine Amber could move 220 pounds that far and get him to fall that out of control. This was an athlete. But for argument's sake, let's say Josh was right next to the window. In fact, inches from it. Say he was staring out at the beautiful Arkansas River and that Amber took a running start to shove him through. That might be possible. But what about her bruises? Did Josh let go and then turn to admire the gorgeous day? Also, remember the neighbor heard lots of yelling just before the incident. Was Josh arguing with his back to his wife? Is there another explanation? Perhaps Amber's version is the perfect explanation and could also align totally with both eyewitness accounts of the fall. Amber said Josh lost his balance and fell backwards towards the glass. So if he did fall out in this manner, how does that match with the eyewitnesses? 
while the two men outside saw Josh falling from the window, it would be nearly impossible for either of them to see the entire thing. I mean, a person would have to be staring directly at that window at the precise time Josh came through in order for them to know for certain how he came out the threshold. More than likely, the witnesses heard the crash of the glass and saw Josh shortly after, already in the air, facing down toward the ground. Now, as I mentioned in episode one, the fall would take between three and four seconds, and the body would be traveling at a speed of approximately 75 miles an hour. Now, why is this important? Because a simple pivot while exiting the window could explain his change of direction. For a moment, imagine Josh falling out backwards going through the glass. In an instant of panic, he reaches out for anything he can get his hands on, and one hand for a split second grabs the side of the window. He's in midair. This would cause his body to pivot, to turn, and now face forward while continuing to fall. A person outside would have to be focused directly on this window before it broke in order to be able to see this because it would happen so quickly. Again, I'm just saying Amber's version is plausible. The media would play an early role in this story for sure. The quick arrest of this widow, along with the sourced information from police investigators about the case and Amber's guilt, would lead to a one-sided media frenzy. Investigators say 23-year-old Joshua Hilberling fell from the 25th floor of the University Tower. Investigators say the deadly plunge was the result of an argument between Hilberling and his pregnant wife, Amber. The confirmation bias we talked about earlier had built up, and it was spreading. It was a zeitgeist, and it would be hard to change what Amber's family declared was the, quote, rich bitch kills military hero narrative. Facebook pages started popping up. In particular, the Put Amber Hilberling Away for Life page would gather great attention and be a place for everyone anti-Amber to vent their contempt. Now, was any of this fair to Amber? Well, that really wasn't a concern for the police and prosecutor. They had a job to do. They had someone they believed was guilty, and they were going to continue to build their case. The authorities knew about the history of domestic violence with Amber towards Josh, and that history did exist and the restraining order from their time in Alaska proved it. But was that the whole story? Amber would say no, and would describe nights on the base in Alaska where Josh would go from out of control to what she described as crazy. He didn't start with hitting me, but I mean, he would throw things, break things, and the neighbors would call the police, and the police uh, security forces would show up and take pictures of whatever was broken, whether it be my phone, was what happened most of the time. There was the one incident that got him arrested was when he tried to actually bust my breast implant and broke all the blood vessels in my chest. And the ambulance showed up and examined me, and I, I refused to go to the hospital, and they, they arrested him and served him with a three-day no-contact order. The complaint Amber filed was on January 2nd of 2011. And the report read, quote, He stated the two of them were making dinner and got into an argument and were yelling at each other. He then stated he picked Amber's dinner plate up and threw it into the air and began to scream in her face, end quote. 
He also stated, quote, he grabbed her by her right breast and pushed her against the wall. This caused her to flee to the neighbor's house. Medical stated she had some bruising and some broken blood vessels in her right breast from the incident. Amber's stepfather, Brian, would describe the regular emotional calls from Alaska, and this night in particular. Well, she would call crying. We'd hear police were called because a plate was thrown. I wasn't happy with the dinner, um, a slap on her leg. She had bruises on her breast. He was trying to break one of her implants. Amber's mother believed from the beginning that the Tulsa police and media knew they had a high-profile family in this city and decided right away Amber was guilty. This would be great publicity and huge ratings. I believe that they set this up. They knew who we were in the community. It had already been, the news was already all over the scene. They had already decided who the parents were who she was, the apartment complex, an iconic building. We do commercials. When we go into restaurants, people know who we are. The media would state that the day of the fall, Josh was packed and trying to leave Amber. He was trying to get away from this abusive wife. Josh's dad, Patrick, said his son had called him shortly before he died and told him he was planning to leave Amber for good. He said his son was at the end of his rope because he couldn't stop Amber from using drugs while she was pregnant with their son, and he just couldn't watch her anymore. Josh's dad said he planned to ask for a divorce as well as custody of their unborn baby. If Josh asked Amber for a divorce, was that the motive? Amber would agree that Josh's bags were packed, but she insisted her husband wasn't leaving her. In fact, he was the one that would never let her leave, never let her go. His bags were just packed because he planned to spend time with his friends because she was kicking him out. In fact, the argument that day was about Josh not wanting to go to Amber's father's wedding, but instead go to a concert with his buddies. To further prove her point that Josh did not want to leave, but actually was trying to get back in the good graces of Amber, was a number of text messages sent just the day before. Amber writes, I don't believe anything you say anymore, so please don't waste your time. Josh replies, 10 minutes is all I ask for. I'll be home. Amber, this is not your home. You're just staying here. Josh replies, I want to have a home with you. I'm sorry I've been such an ass. I'm done complaining and always trying to spend time with my friends when I should spend it with you. Amber's retort is, don't text me that stuff. Josh replies, why? I want to be with you and only you. I love always when you're with me. I won't lose that. Amber's suspicious. She says, are you drunk or something? Josh replies, nope, that's how I feel. I have thought a lot of the way I've been and how you don't deserve that, and I know I can be so much better of a man. Amber's point was, do these sound like the text messages of a man being abused by his wife and wanting to get out? Well, an abusive wife and a desire to leave is exactly what the prosecution was going to build its case on in addition to the important interrogation room tapes. Now, we've already talked about three witnesses in this case, one being the next-door neighbor and the other two being the eyewitnesses outside seeing Josh fall face-forward to his death. But there was another witness, 
the person who would be the last to see Josh alive other than Amber. As you may recall earlier, I said, Josh and Amber had an argument in the bedroom that had ended with a laundry basket being thrown and a window being broken. If you're wondering who it was that threw that laundry basket and broke that window, it was Josh, apparently in anger. Shortly before Josh's fall, Amber had called the building manager to see if the window could be fixed. He actually happened to have two repairmen working in the building that day. Armando Rosales and his employee, Antonio De Paz, were fixing another window at the time he got the call. Mr. Rosales said they would head up to 2509 right away. When they arrived, Josh would walk them back to the bedroom where Amber was sitting on the bed quietly. He saw the broken window as well as a broken table. And, along with how they both seemed upset, thought that the two were in the middle of an argument. Mr. Rosales would send Mr. DePaz back down to the truck to gather some materials to board up the window. While in the parking lot, Mr. DePaz would become one of the two eyewitnesses to look up and see Josh falling face down to his death. After his employee left, Mr. Rosales learned that Josh had broken the window. Josh asked if he could fix it himself, and after Mr. Rosales said no, plus that it would cost them at least $150, Josh became upset. In fact, Mr. Rosales would make a written statement that day saying Josh was, quote, very angry. Josh and Amber both went out to the living room, and Mr. Rosales went outside on the balcony to begin cutting the glass. Moments later, he would hear a crash. His first thought was that they must be arguing and someone threw a chair at the window. He feared Josh might be beating Amber up and he was going to have to go back in to confront this large man. Then he received a call from Mr. DePaz who was down in the parking lot saying someone just fell from a window. Mr. Rosales looked out over the edge to see Josh down below. While Mr. Rosales was outside, he didn't have the ability to hear as much as the neighbor Nathan McGowan did inside the building leading up to the fall. After seeing Josh on top of the parking structure, his next thought was Josh had beaten Amber up and committed suicide. While Mr. Rosales re-entered the building, it was very quiet. He thought Amber might be knocked unconscious somewhere. He entered the living room to see Amber coming from the direction of the front door screaming. And Mr. Rosales would be the person to take Amber down the elevator where she would eventually find her husband, Josh. From these moments forward, everything Amber said in her emotional state would later be described by witnesses. All leading up to that interrogation room where police interpreted and characterized her words as self-incriminating, and would use those statements to justify her arrest. The prosecutors knew how vital the jury seeing Amber's statements to her grandmother in that room would be. If the judge did not allow that in, what else would this case stand on? What evidence? Would it only be everything I just presented an alternate explanation for? We need to take a moment here to recognize and acknowledge that in America, depriving someone of their freedom is a very high standard, as well it should be. What I'm talking about is if you are going to enforce a law 
that empowers you to go take someone off the street, out of their home, out of their life, and lock them in a cage for one day, one year, or the rest of their life, the standard of proof is very, very high. You have to have a jury of your peers go into a room and agree beyond a reasonable doubt that you are guilty of a crime to which that penalty is attached. That means they have to prove their case to the point that there is no other reasonable explanation. There's no other reasonable suspect. There's no other alternative explanation for what could have taken place. It is a very high standard. If there is an alternative theory, if there's an alternative possibility, if there's an alternative suspect that could have explained or committed the crime, you cannot and should not be able to lock up the person that is charged. You have to prove it to a very high standard. The question here is, was that standard met? There were no witnesses to what took place. There was no Mirandized statements, interrogation, or testimony here. There are statements from people that heard things or saw things after the actions took place, but there are alternative explanations for what was reported. Assistant District Attorney Michelle Keeley knew, just like any good attorney would, that juries can change their minds. You can put on the best case with all the evidence in the world and still lose. She knew there was a chance that 12 people might have a hard time seeing the young mother as a killer. If a jury saw a lovely young lady who never had any previous convictions sitting in that courtroom, who knows what the outcome might be? She knew that you have a hard time predicting what a jury might do. So she offered Amber a deal. The deal offered by the prosecution was this. Admit your guilt and accept a five-year prison sentence. Now, that's a five-year sentence. It doesn't necessarily mean she's going to spend five years in prison. It's a five-year sentence. And as you know, you can sometimes get credit for good time, good behavior. There are sometimes mitigating circumstances where you don't have to serve 365 days of each year. But at the most, she would have spent five years in prison. However, Amber was not interested in the plea and certainly not interested in spending five years away from her son, Levi. Amber stated she had not killed her husband and she was not going to admit to something she did not do. So this case, the case of the state of Oklahoma versus Amber Hilberling, was headed to trial. The jury was going to decide what took place on the 25th floor of the University Tower. They were about to listen to the evidence and determine the fate of Levi Hilberling's mother in the death of his father, Josh. But what evidence will this jury be allowed to hear? Would all of the statements Amber made while being secretly recorded by the police with her grandmother even be allowed into the court record? Just these recordings alone were enough for the police to feel like they could charge Amber. Without it, what would be left? Will this trial be held locally, either in or around Tulsa, or might a change of venue take place? This was maybe the biggest news story to go national reported from this city since the Tulsa riots of 1921. 
Could you really find 12 people in this town who had not heard or seen the many breaking news reports about this case, have not been indoctrinated in such a way that they had gone way past being objective? And if they denied having seen or learned anything about it, could you actually believe that they had not already formed some type of opinion? Or on the other hand, might Tulsa be as good a place as any? With this mega story all over the national news media, could someone just claim that all of America was already forming an opinion? You might as well stay in Tulsa. And with all the domestic violence that each of the young newlyweds been accused of, and understand it's domestic violence two ways, each against the other, would that be allowed in front of the jury? The decisions made by the judge in this case would prove to be very important. And I think some of those decisions may shock and surprise you. Plus, what is Amber going to do? Will she take the stand? And if so, what will she say? If forced to, how will she explain away all the things she said in that interrogation room? And then, of course, will this go to verdict? And if so, what will the jury decide? I promise you this case will have an outcome that hardly a soul saw coming. One of the most anticipated trials in the history of this Midwest city was about to begin. We're going to talk about that trial on the next episode of A Beautiful Victim or Killer Wife? Mystery and Murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil.